The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. If you're using one of the Bibles in the back of the pew, you'll find that on page 780, Matthew 25, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one as a gift from Park Church. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gwen. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Happy first week of Advent. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors on, on staff here. We're so excited that you all have joined us. I have a time of personal confession just before we get started. How many of you have been keeping up with the World Cup? Y'all, I grew up in Brazil, and so every four years, the time arrives, and I'm like a kid in a candy shop. I'm watching as many games as I can. It's been so fun to watch everything that's going on, Um, but in all seriousness, it's a fun reminder of how diverse a world that we live in and how awesome it is to think that every tribe, tongue, and nation will one day be worshiping Jesus when he returns before his throne. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Uh, Let's pray just before we start. Ask God for his help today to slow down right now. Remember that he's here and he has something for us. Jesus, thank you for your presence here. You are here. Uh, We thank you that you came as a baby 2,000 years ago, that you are here by your spirit right now, and also you will come again. I pray you'd wake us up to you right now. Uh, We love you. We want to be shaped by you. So would you shape us right now? Teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, I'm going to be kicking off our series in Advent entitled, Christ Will Come Again. Uh, The focus of the next four weeks will be exactly that, Christ will come again. It's a reality that Christians have believed for centuries, that we proclaim this morning as we read through the Apostles' Creed together, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's the message that Christ will come again. And so in order to practice for these next four weeks, I'm going to ask all of you to say with me, Christ will come again. You ready? Christ will come again. Let's try it again. Christ will come again. One last time. 
Christ will come again. As those words came out of your mouth just now, what happened in your heart? Anything? Excitement, maybe? Maybe some nervousness? Maybe confusion about the phrase, like, what in the world? is He's coming back. What's that going to be like? Uh, Some of you might not believe in Jesus. You're like, Christ is not coming back because I don't believe in him, right? No matter what you actually felt, I want to say this to the Christian in the room, that this single phrase should be one that explodes with meaning and with emotion for you. I think that the church is in a scary place when this phrase loses its impact on our lives. And I'm speaking that as much to myself as to you. I think the church obsessed for years around the topic of end times and eschatology, which is the study of the final things or the end things, things about death, judgment, resurrection, fun things, right? But we experience eschatology in some really weird ways. Dispensationalism, uh, pre-trib rapture, which basically is like, you know what, if you're a serious Christian, God's gonna like pull you up into heaven. And so if you're not serious, you're gonna be left behind, which hence spawned the left behind series. We had a bunch of freaked out kids walking around when they couldn't find their parents, right? They're like, they've been raptured, they've been taken up. God, I'm sorry, <laughs> take me next time, right? And that's, and that's really what, we, we were so afraid of that during that time that I think we swung the pendulum in the opposite opposite direction, and we stopped talking about it at all. The church has largely been silent on this topic, when when in fact it should have filled in the blanks for us and said, what does the Bible actually say about Jesus' second coming? What do we find in Scripture? The sad net effect of us doing this is the second coming of Jesus has become detached from our everyday realities. We treat it like it's some peripheral, unnecessary doctrine similar to our appendix. We really don't need to pay much attention to our appendix unless it acts up and we need surgery, right? We don't need to pay attention to the second coming of Jesus until he returns, right? And that's just not True, that's not what we find in the Bible. The Bible and church history, for that matter, don't give us that option of treating it haphazardly or as an optional thing. I would actually say the opposite. It is impossible to live a biblically informed life and not have the second coming at the core of our thoughts and at the core of our actions. If we want to actually be serious about God and serious about our faith, then by default, we will be serious about the second coming, and I'm afraid we're not. Over the next four years, we want to zero in on the second coming of Jesus, asking both what it is, but also how does it shape us in practical ways? What are its implications on the ground level, in the trenches, in our everyday lives? So today, I'm going to be talking about the second coming, what it is, and one of its gifts to us in this time as we live here in Denver in 2022. Neil's going to be preaching next week on the second coming and hope. Gary's going to be wrapping things up on the last two uh, Sundays of Advent, second coming, and holiness. What does that mean for our, our holiness right now and how we live? And in turn, the final week, second coming and mission. How do we live our lives with our neighbors, those around us in our workplaces, in the world that we've been placed in? So as a a, a little roadmap of sorts of where are we going today in my sermon, I'm going to cover four questions for us. Very simple. That's our roadmap. What is the Christian year? Two, what is Advent? Third question, what is the second coming of Jesus actually in the scriptures? And then fourth, how does the second coming affect my life today? 
And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this up front. This sermon will feel a little bit different than what we normally do. Normally, we take one passage, we zero in on it, we exegete it, we exposit it. Today's going to feel a little bit more informational, and we're going to get into more of the nitty-gritty around these passages in the, in the following weeks. But I hope that this helps set the stage for this so that we can engage in this season more intentionally. First question, what is the Christian year? So before we talk about Advent, before we talk about the second coming of Jesus, I thought it'd be helpful to zoom in, or sorry, zoom out a little bit and talk briefly about what the Christian year or the Christian calendar is. For the sake of clarity, I'm going to use the Christian year and the Christian calendar interchangeably. I'm going to define what that is for us, if you haven't heard that term. Uh, If you grew up in a more liturgical, high church context, this might be more of a reminder for you. For other of us who are newer to it, this might be new information for us. Uh, When we talk about the Christian calendar, the truth is is that all of us live from a patchwork of various calendars that we've assimilated in our lives. This patchwork of calendars help us both tell, tell time, but also these calendars situate us in stories that celebrate particular things. So we live in the Advent calendar, the fiscal calendar, so we have to turn in our taxes, the academic calendar, when does the school year start and when does it end, our cultural calendar. Each of these calendars are intentional in how they set aside particular days and times and seasons. Some of these days and seasons are thicker with meaning. Other ones are a bit thinner. They're meant to be fun. But regardless, all of them are doing something to us. They're influencing us. They're shaping us, shaping our affections, shaping how we think about things. And so we can walk through them. The new year, MLK Day, Valentine's Day, Memorial Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Juneteenth, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, even this weekend, we had Black Friday on Friday, uh, small business Saturday, support your local business guys, keep them in business, right? We've got, um, on Monday, we have Cyber Monday, which is great for the on- online retailers, and then Giving Tuesday, because we can't forgive, forget the nonprofits, right? Each of these days has an aim, they have a telos, they have a direction that they're inviting us to go in, and a particular sort of person they're inviting us to become, Even on, I want to ask you to consider any of these days, you can say, man, what is behind it? What are they trying to do in me? How are they trying to shape me? And I'm not even saying all these things are bad things. But on Black Friday, what was the first thing you might have noticed on Black Friday? A ton of emails, right? Like, hey, buy me here. Pay attention to me, right? Black Friday, even that name is like, hey, you have a responsibility to take these, these small businesses or large businesses and take them from the red and put them into the black. And so immediately I start feeling a sense of, of stress. I'm feeling some anxiety. Like, what are the good deals? I'm also feeling like consumerism come on to me. I'm like, oh, what's this? You know, and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm like multiple websites deep. And like, what are the deals? I was texting with somebody from our church. Like, what deals are you looking at? You know, and like, we're texting each other. This single day is shaping our affections, the things that we're looking at. All of these days have a way with us. And so I want to say this to us. Calendars and dates do something to us. Small ways, large ways. We, first of all, shape our calendars, and then in turn, our calendars shape us. So we shape our calendars. We determine these days and how we engage with them. And then in turn, these things shape us. The same is true of the Christian year. Its dates are meant to act on us, and wake us up to certain things that we've forgotten. Similar to Mother's Day. It's a day, you know what? I want to celebrate my mother every day. But on Mother's Day, I say, Mother, thank you for conceiving me, for bringing me into this world. In the same way, the Christian year is a way of doing and zeroing in on particular things. So what is a Christian calendar? 
Christian calendar is a tool of time that's developed somewhat organically over centuries via a church tradition as a way of us intentionally ordering our entire year around the story of Jesus. Author and theologian Robert Weber called the Christian year a gospel superstructure. I love that, a gospel superstructure. The Christian year invites us to habituate or live in the story of Jesus, which is the good news. Every denomination kind of engages in this in slightly different ways, but the aim is the same. Live in this story. This story should be the one story that shapes all of the other stories. When I say that we seek to live within the Christian year, the Christian calendar here at Park, I'm saying that we attempt to look at our days and years within the scope of the story of Jesus and in turn the story of his church. It was fun today to see at the bottom right corner of the worship songs, what did it say? Advent week one. For months we've seen ordinary time, ordinary time, ordinary time, ordinary time, right? Advent week one, suddenly something has shifted, something has shifted. Church, this is when we are. So quick overview of the Christian calendar and what it is, if you're not familiar with it. The Christian calendar starts in Advent for four weeks. It leads to 12 days of Christmas. Christmas isn't just a day, but there are 12 days to it. There is a day of Epiphany, which celebrates that Christ was not only the light of the Jews, but also the the light to the Gentiles as well. We kick back into ordinary time, which is ordered time, chronological time, times that uh, get its meaning from Jesus himself. We, We land into a season of Lent, which is 40 days, leading us up to 50 days of Eastertide, a, a feast celebrating that Christ is risen wrapping up with the day of Pentecost where we celebrate the pouring out of the Spirit on His church, and then we kick back into ordinary time, living in light of the reality of the story of Jesus. So it's a a dual story of both the story of Jesus and also the story of church living out in light of that story. That is the Christian calendar. Some of you might say, I don't practice a Christian calendar. Most of us kind of do. It's like we practice the Christian calendar light or the Christer calendar, the Christmas Easter calendar. You probably do observe it. You might just not observe all the, the other little ones or the different seasons. The full Christian year is an intentional way of remembering not just the main highlight or two of Jesus' story, but also the multiple ones that should shape us in various ways. One question we always ask here at Park is, if this different season of the Christian year had its way with us, what would it shape in us as a church? So what would Advent form in us? What fruit would it bear in us if its seed was planted in us and it bore fruit? What sort of person would I become if I became an Advent person, if I became a Christmas person, if I became an Epiphany person, if I became a Lenten person, if I became an Easter person? Does that make sense? All of these things shape us in particular ways. It's a beautiful narratival arc that we're invited to join and rehearse with our calendars, with our bodies, and with each other. This year, I started thinking about the Christian year in a slightly different way, and so I don't know how many of you guys are uh, experts at Airbnb or or Verbo, VRBO. Some people are like, no, it's pronounced Verbo. That's the way the company said it. I don't know. It still is weird to me. But... Uh, we have different ways as we're looking for neighborhoods. If you're, let's say you're going to go to Barcelona, right? You're going to go to Barcelona. Uh, how do you choose what part of town, what neighborhood to look in? We're like, well, okay, so for me, if I'm going, I'm like looking up my favorite coffee shops, uh, restaurants. I'm like, okay, what neighborhoods have fun this? You know, are you going with kids? Are you not going with kids? I mean, you look at, you consider all of these details as we're considering visiting a city, 
Um, as I started imagining the Christian year, I imagined the Christian year to be like a city that we would visit, akin to Airbnb or Verbo. We're invited to visit the city every year. Every season of the Christian year is akin to a neighborhood, a different part of town that we might spend time in, that we might visit. Certain neighborhoods are known for different things. If you've been, been down to Mexico City, like Roma Norte or Coyacan, all these different places that you go and they're, they're known for different things. Similarly, the Christian year has different neighborhoods that are known for different things. We won't be in the city year-round, but we will be shaped by every place and every neighborhood that we stay in in this town. To make the connection, it's similar with the Christian year. While each of us might lean towards certain seasons or days in the Christian calendar, some of us might be like, man, I love Christmas. Christmas is my jam and Easter is my jam. I'm less into Lent, but Pentecost is all right, you know. We all have our different flavors, but I want to say this to all of us. Each of these seasons can have a powerful formational effect in our lives if we would listen to them and learn from them. We're very comfortable here in the West visiting the Christmas neighborhood and the Easter neighborhood. We don't know our way around the others very well. To push analogy even further, for Christmas, we typically only book one night there instead of 12 nights. We only book you know, whatever, maybe a day in Easter, but we're called to live there for 50 days. And in fact, the rest of the year shaped, is shaped by our time in that neighborhood. Every neighborhood, every building, every street in the Christian year has something to teach us that will inform the whole of our lives and center it around the story of Jesus. Uh, we see the Christian year as a tool of our discipleship, a tool for our discipleship not as an enemy of discipleship, not a distraction from Jesus, but rather one that we can step into and learn to see our story within his story. It helps uh, hold focused attention on particular things about his story. And as we come back to this year after year, that provides an increasing depth in each of these neighborhoods. As I've gone back to different places, some of you guys are like, man, I don't like to go to the same place twice. I want to go see all the new things. So you go to you plan like a European trip and you're there for seven days and you're actually looking at like nine cities, right? And you're just like, choo, 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 and you actually don't get to be there. But imagine if throughout the rest of your life, you visited a particular neighborhood again and again and again, you got to know the locals there. How would that shape your understanding of that neighborhood and your appreciation of it? Their customs there, their practices there. And it's the same with the Christian year. I've spent probably about 20 years in the Christian calendar and each year, there's something beautiful to return to. There's a sense of familiarity within it, but also that every year there's something new to discover in the Christian year. Second question, what is Advent? What is Advent? The word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which means coming or arrival. Advent's invitation to us is both to look back at Christ's first coming as a baby, but also to look ahead to Jesus' second coming, known as his, as his parousia, his return, his powerful return in glory, suddenly in glory. Some have dated Advent's presence in the church calendar as early as the third or fourth century, others as late as the fifth century. Regardless, since its inception, its primary emphasis has been tied directly to Jesus' second coming. It's a season marked by waiting, anticipation, this tension between lamenting the darkness that all of us feel, do we not? And also hoping for the light that will dispel the darkness fully and finally. Advents is a call to watchfulness and alert living. It begins four Sundays before Christmas, and while in essence, in more popular culture and in the church, it's become kind of like a Christmas countdown. 
the reality is it's so much more than that. Inst- instead of being dec- decorated with tinsel, with pretty lights, with fireplaces and Christmas trees, uh, the town and the neighborhood of Advent is more akin to a Mad Max apocalyptic neighborhood with the end is near signs everywhere where its population lives with strained eyes focused in on the dark horizon awaiting for the rising sun. It's a people who live their days praying continually. Maranatha, which means come, Lord Jesus. We look at these multiple mass shootings and we say, come, Lord Jesus. Another friend with a cancer diagnosis and we say, come, Lord Jesus, we need you. That is the season that we're invited to explore in Advent. The dispelling of this light and an anticipation for when he finally does away with that, when these injustices will be done for good. This year, as a church, we tried to hold off a little bit on our Christmas decor because we wanted to say we're going to focus in on Advent primarily. I love this quote from author and priest Fleming Rutledge in her book, Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Christ. It says this, Advent is superficially understood as a time to get ready for Christmas, but in truth, it's a season for contemplating the judgment of God. Okay, she's getting serious. Advent is the season that, when properly understood, does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us in all this world. Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light, but the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. As our Lord Jesus tells us, unless we see the light of God clearly, what we call light is actually darkness. How great is that darkness? Advent bids us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. It can be argued that Advent, more than any other season of the church year, is immediately relevant to our concrete lives as individuals, to the concrete life of the church under stress, and to the concrete headlines in the newspaper. Advent is a season for contemplating the judgment of God. That's intense. That's different than we experience Advent today. Advent is not Christmas in the same way that Christmas is not Easter and Easter is not Pentecost. They're all tied together by Jesus, but each of those things are not the same things. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we allow the Christmas creep to overshadow Advent. One last thought on Advent. While it is the first season of the Christian year, in essence, it's also the last. What do I mean? The Christian year begins with the end. Have you ever watched a movie that starts with a scene from the end of the movie that's kind of jarring right at first? I just watched Enola Holmes 2 with my daughters, and it starts with like her like running around from all these people. She's trying to escape something. You're like, what in the world is happening? You're trying to figure out what the scene is. And she's like, hold on, let me explain to you how I got here. In a sense, that's what the Christian year does with Advent. It starts at the end with Christ's return, and then it has us go back and start over again in the story. It jumps into Christmas. It tells us what is to come and then it has us work our way back through the rest of the story as it proceeds, as it unfolds. This is the gift of Advent to us today. It reminds us where the story is headed and how it ends. And that should shape the entirety of the story. Advent leads us directly into this third next question. What is the second coming? What is it? As I said earlier, the doctrine of the second coming was never meant to be a sidebar in our lives or a peripheral document, an optional extra. 
It's actually a rock that we're meant to build our lives on. It's also a springboard into kingdom ethics and how we live everyday lives. W.H. Griffith Thomas, in his book, Principles of Theology, said this. The return of our Lord Jesus Christ is not a mere doctrine to be discussed, nor a matter for intellectual study alone. Its prominence in the New Testament shows the great importance of the truth, for it is referred to over 300 times, and it may almost be said that no other doctrine is mentioned so frequently or emphasized so strongly. Baptism is mentioned 19 times in seven epistles, and in 14 out of 21 is not alluded to. The Lord's Supper is only referred to three or four times in the entire New Testament, and in 20 out of 21 epistles, there is no mention of it. The Lord's coming is referred to in one verse out of every 13 in the New Testament, and in the epistles alone in one verse out of 10. This proportion is surely of importance, for frequency of mention is any criterion. There is scarcely any other truth of equal interest and value. To summarize this quote, the second coming is a really, really big deal in the Bible. Uh, my thought for us today for, to explore this question was to simply read a number of texts that we see about Jesus and his second coming from the New Testament so that we can see them with our own eyes. Out of those 300, I'm only going to read 10 of them today. Uh, we read one of them for, uh, for our, our Bible passage that was read earlier. But I think these 10 passages, I'm going I'm to bring them out, drawn from different authors, different people that give us a fuller picture. But I hope that you notice the unity of focus and importance around Jesus' second coming. And so I want to start off with a quote from Jesus from Matthew 24, 30 through 31. This is Jesus himself speaking about his second coming. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of, the, of heaven to the other. Jesus and his message was this, that he will come again. Not only did Jesus speak to it directly in, with his words, but also indirectly through multiple stories, multiple parables. While many had the theme of return, the parable that we read today of the 10 virgins is especially insightful. Let's read it again together. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they're going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That's a heavy parable, but Jesus' message behind many of his parables was this, Christ will come again. Immediately following Jesus' ascension in the book of Acts, we're told that there's an angel who speaks to his disciple, and this is what's spoken in Acts 1.11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you 
into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The angel's message in Acts was the same as that of Jesus. Christ will come again. We find a man named Saul converted into the apostle Paul. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul's message was the same. Christ will come again. Moving on to Peter the Apostle. This is what he said in his second letter to Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter joined Paul's message. Christ will come again. Are you noticing the theme? John, the beloved disciple, had a lot to say about this. In 1 John 2.28, he says this, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at what? His coming. That is John's message. Christ will come again. Moving on to the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 9, 27 through 28, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is the writer of Hebrews' message, that Christ will come again. James, who's the brother of Jesus, says this in James 5, 7 and 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus' brother joined the message of others. Christ will come again. The last book in the Bible, we find John talking again about this. Revelation 1-7 says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. At the end of the book of Revelation, we find Jesus speaking again. These are his last words that we find in the entire Bible. And he says this. He who testifies to these things says, this is Jesus' word, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. From the Gospels, through the epistles, and the pastoral letters, and closing in Revelation, the repeated mantra and message of the New Testament is the same. Christ will come again. The day of the Lord. Christ will come again. What do we know about a second coming? What do we know from Scripture? What will it be like? There's a lot of things we don't know about a second coming. We, we do know that we don't know the day or the hour. It will be sudden. It will be glorious. I love this quote from Sam Storms that articulates what his second coming is. And it says this, the second coming of Jesus Christ is the personal, meaning he won't send an angel in his place, visible because every eye will see him, physical, he will come in the body in which he was crucified, crucified, raised, and glorified, return of Jesus to this earth to consummate the salvation of his people. 
to be glorified in them and to inflict vengeance on those who have defied him in the gospel of grace. At his first coming, Jesus came as a suffering servant, a sacrificial lamb, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and to inaugurate the kingdom rule of God. We read in Hebrews 9.28 that he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him and to consummate the kingdom in its fullness. Friends, this is the second coming that we find in Scripture. This is the second coming that we believe in. It's the one that we rehearse in Advent. It's the one that we declare in the Apostles' Creed. And it's the one that we pray for in the Lord's Prayer when we say, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. So how do we do this? How do we live awake and aware of Christ's second coming? I want to say this, that I think one of the greatest gifts that Advent offers us today is the gift of wakefulness. The gift of wakefulness. The truth is it's so easy to live our lives asleep in Denver, is it not? Advent shakes us out of this lackadaisical and drowsy living. We can live so short-sightedly as we move from one ski trip to another, one brewery to another, one meal to another, one house offer or remodel to another, that we forget that life is so much more than these things. I think Denver can get our eyes so set on the immediate that we forget the imminent. I want to repeat that. Denver can get our eyes so set on the immediate things, immediate gratification, immediate pleasures that we forget the imminent, that which is coming soon. Advent comes to us like an alarm clock in the season and wakes us from our nearsighted dreaming, encouraging us to live life awake and open to the kingdom of God instead. To live adventally is to live wakefully, to live watchfully. I think that's why the parable of the ten virgins is an Advent parable. In this question, will we live foolishly with regard to Christ's return or will we live wakefully and prepared? James K. Smith uh, wrote a wonderful new book called How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. And one of the reasons that he wrote this book as he set it up is that he thinks so many today live deeply disoriented lives. Do any of you relate? Do you live disorientedly? We typically connect disorientation with someone not knowing where they are. When someone gets a traumatic head wound, they start coming to and they're like, where am I? And these are the questions that disoriented people ask, what am I living for? Where am I? Jamie points out that not only are people disoriented in place, but also in time. People often are asked, do you know what time it is? Do you know who the president is currently, right? We forget not only where we are, but also when we are. There's a condition that's actually a a condition called dyschronometria, where the person can't assess how much time has actually passed. They only forget where they are, but also they forget when they are. And I think the same is true of us spiritually. We suffer from spiritual dyschronometria. And I think Advent is an antidote to this kind of disoriented living, this forgetful living, where we just kind of live life haphazardly, not knowing the time that we're actually in, the sort of people that God has called us to be here in Denver, in our households, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and all around. Advent is intended to wake us up to when we are and to live accordingly. And so as a church, we're inviting you to live this Advent season Differently On Sundays, we're going to do things slightly differently. I want to walk through a couple things that we're going to be doing differently on Sundays. We'll be lighting Advent candles, remembering that Jesus came as a light and that one day he will fully and finally push away 
the darkness. Uh, Some of us feel as if darkness will have the last say. I want to say to you, darkness will not have the last say. Jesus is the light of the world, and we remember that in Advent. Cancer will not have the last word. Wars will not have the last word. Jesus will. We'll also be proclaiming the Apostles' Creed together at the beginning of our services as we remind ourselves what story we're actually living within. We live within a much larger story. We'll be reading the mystery of faith together before communion. It's a historic prayer that says this, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. I think as Christians, we're pretty good at being aware of those first two. Christ has died, Christ is risen, amen. But Christ will come again. And we want to surround ourselves with this reality in this Advent season. Not only are we doing things differently on Sundays, we're also inviting all of you to join us for two practices, a daily practice and also weekly practice during the season of Advent that we hope will situate you and also help you live wakefully. Um, And just a quick comment, all of these resources will be up on our website, so parkchurch.org forward slash Advent. If you want to go there later, it's going to be up there. Also, there's a, there's a, there's a little sidebar on there that says subscribe. Uh, we're going to be sending out weekly devotions. I'll get into that in a bit, but sign up there and know that we're going to be putting resources there up there uh, for you throughout Advent. All right, daily prayer. What are we inviting you into? Uh, what we're inviting you into to do during the season of Advent, the next four weeks, is to pray the Lord's Prayer together. How many of you guys know what the Lord's Prayer is, right? Our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then it proceeds, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses and we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is the Lord's Prayer. And I want to imagine with you for a moment, what if we prayed this prayer and not just prayed it once, maybe three times a day, in the morning, at noontime, in the evening. If three is too much, just start with one. Don't want to overwhelm you. But imagine if at the beginning of the day, you reach not for your phone, but you reach for the Lord's Prayer. You reach for the Lord's Prayer and you said, Our Father, I am not alone. I am amongst a community of people, brothers and sisters, and we have a Father who loves us. That we don't don't reach for the news, we don't reach for the email, we don't reach for Instagram, we reach for the Lord's Prayer. And in reaching for the Lord's Prayer, we reach for God himself. Imagine during your lunch hour, instead of, of doing something else, instead of trying to work on something else, you just pray the Lord's Prayer and you're like, Lord, your kingdom come in my workplace as it is in heaven. Give me eyes that see my, my fellow coworkers, employees, employer, in your, with your eyesight. Give me opportunities to love them today. I want to love you by loving them well today. At the end of your evening, when you're gathered, maybe you're in a household with roommates, it might be uh, with your family, whatever it is, but imagine lighting Advent candles together and praying the Lord's Prayer together as you express with gratitude what you saw of God and you ask for forgiveness where you wandered from him. That's what we're inviting you into this Advent season, praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Not only daily prayer we invite you into, but also weekly fasting. Fasting is a wonderful way of directing your physical hunger toward a spiritual hunger. We fast from food if we're able to in order to feast on God. And we're inviting you to fast from food from breakfast and lunch on Wednesdays. You can do it for dinner as well, but sometimes it's just helpful to break that up. Your stomach prior, I don't know how soon your stomach start like making some noise if you're hungry. It's like, you know, and you're like, oh, sorry, people, you know. 
Those little noises are calls to pray. Are, 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 are in a sense like, a, like a, a bell that's being rung saying, remember that you're fasting from these things. So maybe set an alarm on your phone, say, you know, remind me whatever time you wake up, right before you wake up, say, remind me on Wednesdays at, you know, whatever, 6 a.m., 6 or whatever time, and say, remind me to fast from food, right? And then as those stomach kind of pangs kind of start kicking in, begin to use those as like calls to prayer. And say, God, remind me of yourself, that you are returning. Let, let, let this time of fasting incre- basically increase a longing for Jesus' second coming and feasting on him in this time. Uh, if you want to come here during the lunch hour on Wednesdays, sometimes I fast from food and then I'm like, oh great, it's an opportunity to get more work done. So I'm just gonna work through the, through the lunch hour. That's not what the point is, is just to survive it. The point is to actually engage with God more. There's gonna be a, a, a pocket of people over here in the side gallery on Wednesdays from 12 to 12.45 that are gonna be gathering to sing and pray together around these Advent themes. So we invite you to join us for that. Um, if you're not able to do it, sign up on our Advent web website to subscribe to that. We're going to be sending out a text with devotionals and things that you can actually pray about around these sermon topics. Also, just as a side note, uh, if you don't want to fast from food, there's also other ways to fast from things. You can fast from social media, uh, even if it's just at the beginning in the first hours, to fast from those things and say, God, awaken me to you. Um, I have a third practice um, that's extra credit. So if you don't want to, if you're like already overwhelmed, you're like, forget you, you can shut me off right now. Um, I've, got, I've, got, I've got this called Choose Your Own Adventure. Um, I got booed in the first service. So thank you guys for not, thank you for not booing me today. I don't know. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Um, choose your own adventure reading, right? We have a bunch of books out on the info table over there, Advent devotionals, but also some books on the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes we get in little ruts, and sometimes books can break us out of the rut. I want to be clear. These books aren't an excuse to not seek the face of God. Actually, these books are meant to point us back to Jesus so we can actually get in to the weeds and and practice prayer with God. I want to highlight one book, uh, Dan Murata preached this summer here while he was here. He just released a book on the Lord's Prayer. It's called Liturgy in the Wilderness, How the Lord's Prayer Shapes the Imagination of the Church in a Secular Age. Uh, we have a few copies over there. Check that out. We're offering all of these for 10 bucks. Um, and so grab those. We also have some free Advent uh, guides from last year if you didn't grab those. So those are available uh, for you as well. Uh, Friends, each of these Advent practices we've recommended and intentionally aimed at stirring us in our longings for Christ who will come again. That's what we're praying for, that God does in our hearts. Uh, These prayers that we're praying can wake us up to God and our need for Him. Fasting grows our hunger for our King and His kingdom. And then focused seasonal reading and reflection directs our minds and our attention to specific and focused things. And, And I hope that you all feel less of like the pressure of this season and more of the invitation to each of you to slow down, and just even as we were praying uh, this morning, I was was reminded of, in Revelation 3, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And I think even in us taking on some of these practices, these are ways that we open up the door to meet with God in the season. These are are practices not of, of pressure and feeling bad if you don't do them. We are informed by tradition. We're not ruled by tradition. Our encouragement mostly is that you would love God more in this season, that you'd love your neighbors more. But our hope is that coming out of the season of Advent, you would live wakefully, alive to God and all that he's calling and to this reality that he is coming again. Let's pray.
Jesus, uh, we thank you uh, for this reality that you came so humbly as a suffering servant to lay down your life for us and also you are here by your spirit. You're here with us right now. We're not alone. You've given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit saying, I will come again. And so we say together with the spirit, come. The spirit and the bride together say come. And where we don't say come, would you teach us to cry, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Where we have no longings for you, Jesus, would you increase those longings right now? Would this season of Advent be one that just stirs us in our affections for you and for your return? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.